Alexandra Jo's latest book, The Royal Correspondent, is one for the fans of the Crown TV series, revisiting as it does swinging London in the 60s, seen through the eyes of a young Australian journalist coming from the wrong side of the tracks, promoted to covering the British royal family. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's binge reading episode, Alexandra talks about the scandalous story from her own family that got her started in fiction. She discusses her father's rags to riches story and how having discovered fiction writing as her third career, she doesn't have any plans to change to a fourth one anytime soon. You'll find a full transcript of our chat on the website thejoysofbingereading.com along with links to all of Alexandra's books and her media. Come along and visit us there. We love to hear your comments and suggestions and we always reply to listeners. But now, here's Alexandra. Hello there, Alexandra, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. I am delighted to be talking to you, Jenny. Look, you've had a stellar career in journalism, and we'll talk about that a little later, but you have now very successfully transitioned to writing fiction, and your most recent book, The Royal Correspondent, is an entertaining revisiting of 1960s London through the eyes of a young Australian journalist, Blazy. It's just one for fans of The Crown, for starters, isn't it? Now, as we've said, you started as a journalist yourself. How did you make that transition to, to be a novelist? As a child, I learned to read very young and I was immediately captured by the concept of story. I read and read and I used to tell stories to my classmates, but I was so in awe of novelists, I didn't think I could ever do it. So I stuck to nonfiction. When I wrote my memoir about my great-grandmother, Rosetta, something shifted within me. I think because, just to set the scene, Rosetta was a happily married, so we thought, very young woman in Edwardian Melbourne with a husband and a five-year-old child, and she ran away with a half-Chinese fortune teller called Zeno the Magnificent. The the pair completely reinvented themselves. He said he was a distinguished doctor from Japan. She said she was American. They went over to London and they became the toast of the town. Letters from I have from royalty and from wonderful telegrams saying things like, please come and stay at my villa in Cap Martin because Princess Charlotte will be there and Empress Eugenie is popping in. But the whole thing was invented. They led an incredible life. But she never saw her child again, and that child was my grandmother. When I wrote the book, I used two voices. One was their life told using the techniques of fiction because, after all, whoever knew what they were saying 
Was it true? Was it false? Nobody knew. And the other was grounded in fiction because it was the story of me looking for her. When I finished the book and it had a very good reception, I started thinking, you know, maybe I could channel my great-grandmother. She led a a life which was filled with glamour and adventure, but most of all with invention. And I thought, maybe I can do that too, excepting I'm going to do it a little more safely and conservatively through books. And it all started happening. Look, that's a fantastic story. We were going to get on to Rosetta a little later, but now that you've mentioned her, it is an amazingly scandalous story. I mean, in some ways, if a novelist tried to produce it, you might be accused of being too too fantastical. But how did how much of her did you know before you started? And did it change your view of your family history as you as you did your research? I knew nothing other than my grandmother used to say, my mother ran away and left me. She didn't want me. So it was a family tragedy and a sense of great distress. And my mother always referred to her. See, we didn't even know her name. My mother referred to her as that woman. And she used to say that woman ruined my mother's life. When my grandmother died, my father, who was an ex-journo, decided he would track down this mysterious woman. And he began to find these incredible stories and people that had known her that were able to tell him about her. And he was the one who said to me, Al, which is what you get called when you have had three older brothers, Al, you have to write this book. It's an amazing story where fact and fiction are very difficult to discern, but what is certainly true are the facts of this incredible life. And I can tell you there is nothing weirder than reading in the pages of the Melbourne Melbourne newspaper, The Age, about your great-grandmother's scandalous (laughs) divorce and her adultery with this fortune teller. Absolutely, considering the heights that your dad reached, which we'll talk about as well. But that has been optioned for TV as well, hasn't it? So how is that progressing as far as getting to the TV screens? Well, I would have to say at this stage, slowly. I have seen a script for a first episode or two. It's quite an expensive project to mount as all shows which are historical are and also because of the locations overseas in London and in France, which are not possible to access at the moment. Of course, yeah. So I think it's it's mothballed probably for the next couple of years, but that's fine by me. I have plenty of books to keep writing in the meantime. Yes, so switching back to the Royal Correspondent. Now, I think you've mentioned that this is about to be released in the US as well, isn't it? That's correct. Very exciting. And I imagine that, I mean, the US has such an interest in the royal family as well that that it's got a good chance of attracting good attention. So it's a rags-to-riches story of a young Sydney girl from the wrong side of the tracks who ends up in Fleet Street 
covering the British royal family. The way that you tell it, it's perfectly uh, feasible that this could have happened, although she did have a very difficult journey to get there, as was typical in those years for women in journalism. But it was very much inspired by your father's own remarkable life history, wasn't it? Now, tell us a bit about him. My dad's name was Asher Joel, or the Honourable Sir Asher Joel, as he became, although nobody would have thought that this was possible because he was born to an impoverished family that lived in one of Sydney's seediest inner city suburbs. His father, Harry, said to him, there's only four ways to climb out of this dump, and that's by the four Ps. What are the four Ps, my father asked. And his father replied, priest, police, pugilist, as in pro-boxer, or press. Well, for reasons of either religion, physiology or sheer inclination, the first three were ruled out. Dad went for press. <laughs> he left school at the age of 14 and joined a newspaper, which is still going today, the Daily Telegraph, and there began his stellar career. He ended up organising virtually every state event of significance from way back in George V's coronation celebrations up to royal tours, the visit to Australia of the Pope, of President Johnson, the opening of the Opera House, and he did it while he was in Parliament, and, but he took on all these extra duties without charging anything because he believed in service. And because of that, the Queen knighted him not once but twice. So it was a pretty extraordinary trajectory. Absolutely, and it sounds like he invented another P as well, politician. Well, I guess that's true, although he always thought of himself as a parliamentarian. Oh, Perhaps yes. yet another P. <laughs> uh, as I considered my father's extraordinary and one could say improbable life, I began thinking, what if he had been born a girl? Yeah. What obstacles would she have faced and who yeah. might she have become? And that was the starting point for the Royal Correspondent. Now, the street in Sydney that you give Blaze as her home is actually, I gather, the street where your father grew up. But I'm sure that by the time you were growing up, you were quite some distance from that street. Was it hard to go back and recreate that period and place? Well, surprisingly, it was not. There was a reason for this. One, many, many, many years ago, Dad had had a small painting commissioned of that very house so that he would never forget it. And he made sure when I was a teenager that he brought me back there. And I have the most vivid memory of walking down the street with him as he told me the story of the four Ps. And then, of course, quite recently, because I love to walk the walk of all my characters, I went back, I walked the street and re-experienced it as an adult. And then 
I interviewed lots of people who were around in those days. I did interviews with journalists and research. And gradually, layer by layer, it became extraordinarily vivid. Was that street much the same or has it been gentrified? It has been gentrified. It's certainly not as run down, you know, with its rubbish in the road and the outhouses and the lack of heating and terrible ventilation, although it's still not what you would call, and I don't want to be disrespectful to the good people of Fotheringham Street, it's a long way from the prestige property of the Sydney's leafy North Shore or its harbourside suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Many of the events you cover in the book, like in the TV show The Crown, are milestone events of their time. The rise of Carnaby Street and Mary Quant, the Profumo affair comes into it, Princess Margaret's marriage to Tony Armstrong Jones. I imagine that as a journalist, you you probably had a lot of experience at, at researching it, but did you find weaving the fiction into it um, a bit tricky at times? Oh, look, it's always a nightmare because you're tr- on one hand you have fixed events. You know, you can't sort of fudge a royal wedding or mm-hmm. a landmark event like the Profumo affair which brought down a government. But then you have your character's arc and they have to mesh seamlessly So that's always a juggling act. But I love to do it because I feel it gives the reader such a layered experience and it's so much richer than it would be otherwise. Also, I use the period and its events to illuminate the nature of the character so that the changes that are going on in society you can see those changes mirroring in the character, the way that she develops and alters herself and discovers that life is a great deal more complex but also more exciting than she could possibly have imagined. Yeah. Look, it's interesting, the aspect where at the very beginning when Blasey starts in journalism, more or less the only place women can go is other women's pages. And they're regarded as being not really, not really proper journalism in quotes by a lot of the men anyway. I imagine you probably spoke to a number of women who can still remember those days, even though they would be fairly old now, but who actually lived through that. Did you? Oh, I absolutely did and their memories remained vivid they had a tough tough time and some of the stories have found their way into the book uh, Mm. such as the time blaze is cornered in the dark room by a couple of photographers who Mm. pounce on her She manages to escape. She rushes to the editor and in a state of great distress and he says, well, are you all right? And she says, well, yes. And he goes, well, what do you mean boys will be boys? Go back to your desk, write some news. So, you know, no matter what happened, it was up to women to fend for themselves and it was actually quite shocking. But... 
One of the appeals of journalism, if you could battle your way into it, even if you were confined to the women's pages, was that unlike every other profession in the late 50s and early 60s, women were not forced by law to earn only 75% of a male wage. Journalism was the exception. Maybe they thought there'd never be women in journalism because women became paid exactly the same as men. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a big appeal to a poor girl. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Look, the book before this one, The Paris Model, also has a very strong kernel of fact at its heart. It's the story of an Australian model called Grace Woods, who was a mannequin for Dior immediately after the Second World War in the late 1940s. Now, her story amazingly perhaps got a weeny bit obscured in the mists of time, and it's re-emerged. I'm just wondering, how did she come to your attention? Well, it's fascinating the way one book leads into another. And often I think of myself as a story catcher out there with my butterfly net. Sometimes I pounce and sometimes a wonderful butterfly just flutters its way into the net. (laughs) After Rosetta was published, to my surprise, I began getting letters and emails and messages from people around Australia who wanted to relay their own family story. It was as if I had released the rattling skeleton in my closet and they felt they could do so as well. So these were people, of course, I didn't know at all and I was incredibly touched by the privilege of being allowed into these secrets. But the interesting thing is it's often the person you know best that there will be a corner of their life which remains a mystery. And I was sitting with a good friend I'd known for years and years in her beautiful garden, sipping a cup of tea, telling her about this phenomena, and she said, I don't think I've ever told you about my mother. And when I heard the extraordinary circumstances, particularly of Grace's birth, I immediately said, it was like falling in love. It was like I said immediately, I have to tell your mother's story. It's going to be fiction. I'm going to invent lots of it, but I need to capture your mother. Can I do it? And she wasn't sure about that. She she went off and had a family meeting and came back a week later and I was rather on tender hooks and she said, yes, we all decided Grace would love it, which was a big relief to me as I was so excited I had already begun writing. So Grace Woods is a was, she's passed away now, was a real person. Her parents, as I have described them, were real. The fabulous sheep and wheat station she grew up on existed. She was a model. She was beautiful and spirited. I did give her a fictional life in Paris. She was a model, but I used part of my mother's life because my mother was a post-war Dior model in Sydney for David Jones. So, again, it was a blending of fact and fiction. But the funny thing was 
the the incredible circumstances, the amazing coincidence which drives the story forward, which I, of course, can't reveal, when the book, when the manuscript went to my publisher, she said, "I, I just love this story. But, I mean, this coincidence that you've made up, I mean, isn't this just a bit far-fetched? And I was able to say, Anna, that is the part that is absolutely true, which just goes to show that old maxim fact is truly stranger than fiction. Yes, yes. I, I was thrilled that, and what I aim for is this sense that fiction and fact are blended so seamlessly and the story is so plausible that it stands on its own. Yes, yes. I imagine you, in your own career as a journalist, you, I I don't know if you quite regarded as the peak, but one of the peaks would have been your time as Harper's Bazaar editor, and that would have given you a tremendous amount of background. And as you've mentioned, your mum was a a mannequin as well, but you would have had a very strong grasp of the fashion aspect of it from your previous work, I would imagine. Well, that is true. What I should mention is that much earlier I wrote a book before I was editor and another book after that, and they were the histories of fashion in Australia but set in a global sense. So it's a sort of history of Australia told through dress. So I am something of a fashion um, historian. I have been on the board of our Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, which has a very important fashion collection. So I've always loved the detail of dress. And as you would have seen in my books, I think it illuminates the period so incredibly well, whether, you know, it's a hand-buttoned boot in the Edwardian era, whether it's a fabulous Dior gown in the post-40s or whether it's the revolutionary miniskirt which makes its appearance down the King's Road in the Royal Correspondent. Absolutely. I loved the detail of of the window uh, displays for Mary Quant too. It It was quite obvious that you'd really gone into it and it, it brought that alive in a way that, I mean, I, I was vaguely alive at that time, but I never really knew about the window displays and that was fantastic. Uh, well, that's something which I discovered only recently because I was fortunate enough when we could travel in 2019 to go to a stunning exhibition. It was the very first retrospective of Mary Quant's work, which was on at the V&A in London. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to gain all sorts of details and also to get written information which hadn't been available before. So I didn't have to make up those windows, not one jot. They, <laughs> they all existed. So, yes, so, you know, the model with the fishing rod ending up in a goldfish bowl with live goldfish swimming around is all completely true, as are the other amazing show-stopping windows. (laughs) That's amazing. Look, aside from your journalism, you've established a practice as a psychotherapist and counsellor in more recent years. 
And that seems like quite a change of pace from your previous work. I was just curious as to what attracted you to take that path and develop that as an extra sideline, really. I was invited onto the board of the foundation for the Royal Hospital for Women, which was located in a historic site in Sydney. It was moving to be part of the Prince of Wales campus and we needed enormous amount of money in order to do that. I became president of the foundation and worked extremely closely with the hospital over a period of some five years. And through doing that, I realised that there were needs in the community I felt weren't being met. And strangely, when I was doing fundraising, which wasn't events, but it was with major benefactors and corporations, usually the people you talk to are men. And those men wanted to speak about their wives' miscarriages or their mother's breast cancer. I realised I'd never talked about it before. Mm. That inspired me to think I want to go back, I want to do further study. I was a therapist for 10 years, and I know people say, isn't that weird? But I say to them, you know, journalists spend their lives in rooms asking questions. Mm. So do therapists. Mm -hmm. I was terribly privileged to do the work. It was tough, but to be able to walk in another's shoes, to have them trust you with their stories is a tremendous grace. By the end of that 10 years, my life circumstances had changed. I really missed the creativity of writing. I had the benefit of hearing stories for a decade. Yeah. I learned to suspend judgment. And that's that was my way into writing Rosetta because I had to put aside all that sort of family animosity and think, why would a woman do this? Why would mm. she run away from her husband? Mm. Why would mm. she leave her child behind and never see her again? So it was a bridge. And as I explained earlier, Rosetta was a bridge to the Paris model. Mm. And now I have the Royal Correspondent. And I dare say that that work maybe helped you to also imagine the sort of sort of turmoil that Rosetta herself had had gone through, leaving her daughter behind. No matter whether she ever looked back or not, she can't have done it without feelings. It did help me to understand. It helped me to suspend judgment. And also to focus on the context of the times mm. where she was married off as a teenager. In her view, she was assaulted on her wedding night. You know, she, mm. she knew absolutely nothing. Mm. She was stuck. She had no prospects. She was an intelligent, beautiful, spirited woman. And you could just imagine, you know, there you are with a child on one hip and you're sort of stirring the soup. And you go to a fortune teller who whispers in your ear, run away with me and you can do whatever you want to do. And she did. She yeah. can live the life of her dreams. Mm. And it's quite likely because in the divorce papers, which I have in the original copper plate writing, there was no mention of the child because the child was seen as the property of the father. 
Mm. And it's quite likely that she was banned from ever seeing her child again. I don't know. Mm. I can only surmise. But I think it was a far more complex situation than I initially understood it to be. Yeah, yeah. Look, that brings us nicely to another of your achievements. You were editor of Portfolio magazine, which was the first Australian magazine for working women. And it's obvious that you've had a real passion for the the course of working women. Both of these books, The Paris Model and The Royal Correspondent, really are looking at the issue of the opportunities for women. How do you feel about the progress or, or otherwise that we've made today as far as women and their working lives? Frankly, on one hand, it's astonishing because, again, going back to the Royal Correspondent, it was thought an enormous improvement that women were given 75% of the basic wage because up to the advent of post-World War II, they only got 50%. Mm. which was absolutely disgraceful. And, of course, if you joined the public service and you were married, you were forced to leave. If you flew with an airline and you married, you were forced to leave. You couldn't join a union. You couldn't take up a trade. And these restraints did not end completely until 1973. Three. And then when I was researching the Paris model, to my astonishment, there's a point in which Grace needs to apply for a passport and becomes a pivotal point in her life. But when I was researching it, I found, I don't know about New Zealand, you they may be far more advanced, but certainly in Australia, a woman needed her husband's permission to apply for a passport up until 1983. Wow, yes. just about fell off my chair. (laughs) Of course, none of this exists today, although, and it's just so exciting to see young women like my daughter forging ahead, although there are not the structural boundaries, let's just say there are more subtle obstacles still to overcome. Mm, Yeah. Look, this one question I always like to ask, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret of your success? Hmm. Well, can I say three things? (laughs) Yes, yes, of course. First, I think, is reading. I think if you're going to write, you should read. And you don't need to be confined by genre or period The more you read, the better you write. I truly believe that. I think the second thing is that I'm curious. Yeah. And that's something I think Dad modelled for me. He always said, you know, don't ever walk past a hole in the ground without thinking, I wonder how that got there. I wonder what's (laughs) at the bottom of it. I wonder what might happen next, which is the answer to a great story a great story you always want to know what happened next and I think the third thing is it's just work ethic you know you can't wait for the muse to visit you it Mm. would be a bit like saying oh I don't feel like being a a surgeon today or I don't feel like being a hairdresser or whatever you are because I don't have the muse you just you have to approach it professionally 
sit yourself down and do it. And whether it's beautiful prose or not, it's the time you put into it that counts. Yeah. You can always go back and rewrite, can't you? That is so true. And, my gosh, that is the beauty of cut and paste. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it's great you mentioned reading because that's we'll move on to this question of reading now because this is the joys of binge reading. And I do like to always ask people, do they like to binge read? And if so, what do they like to binge read? What would they like to recommend for other readers? Well, I love reading, surprise, surprise, historical fiction. Uh-huh. And, you know, some, it may be literary and it may be popular. I love the works and I really recommend the backlist of Rose Tremaine, especially the books set in the British Restoration under King Charles. Of course, the books of Hilary Mantel, who doesn't love Wolf Hall, just stunning research and stunning storytelling. I also love the work of Robert Harris. He is a fa- he roams across different genres, but he did a fantastic trilogy based on the life of Cicero, which doesn't sound exciting, but it was told through the eyes of Cicero's slave. He did a fantastic book on the Dreyfus Affair called, I think it was called A, a Spy and a Gentleman or A Gentleman and a Spy. I can't remember which way around it goes. I also like, but I do love crime. I love crime and I love the plotting in crime. More recent discovery was Dervla McTiernan. She lives in Perth but she comes from Ireland and she has a wonderful character that's set in Galway. And, oh, and Benjamin Black, who is in fact the Booker Prize winning John Banville, who does a fabulous series about a pathologist with the unlikely name of Quirk, which is set in basically in the 50s. I get my historical fiction fix as well, also in Ireland. Strangely enough, Celtic countries like Ireland and Scotland seem to be great settings for crime. (laughs) That's great. Look, circling round and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? That is such a good question. I have thought a lot about that of late. And what I have thought is, why didn't I start writing novels earlier? You know, mm. why, why, did, why did I, why is this my third career? And especially as my dad always said to me, you should write books, you should write books. And, of course, like all children who are convinced their parents know absolutely nothing about them and certainly not what is in their best interest, I ignored him. (laughs) However, I now believe that I needed that range of experience. If Mm. I hadn't worked in journalism, if I hadn't had my exposure to fashion, If I hadn't had that decade of delving into and walking beside my therapy clients' lives, if I hadn't learned to suspend judgment, all those lessons, if I hadn't read that number of books, have gone into me creating these novels. But I have to say this 
will be my last career. And now that I'm on to my fourth book in a row, I have no intention of stopping. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, that brings us beautifully to that the penultimate question. What is the, the prospects for the next year or so for Alexandra, the writer? What are you working on now and what projects have you got under development? Well, I dearly wish that I could travel because it's very exciting yeah. having various releases around the world. I was so sorry. I've always sort of dreamt of seeing my book in Barnes & Noble and when they made it Book of the Month, I practically wept because I couldn't be there to see it. Um, <laughs> it, will, it will be released in Germany and various other countries, even Romania, who are also doing a translation. So that's coming up. Of course, as you mentioned, The Royal Correspondent will be released in America. But I'm now working on a new book, Speaking of America. This one is set in the 80s. In the Paris model, Grace came from a great sheep station in New South Wales. In The Royal Correspondent, she grows up in the tough inner city in my next book, My Heroine Comes from a Hippie Commune by the Coast. But she goes to New York in the Greedy's Good 80s. Uh -huh. And this book is set in the art world, the high stakes international art world. Sounds great. <laughs> So how far advanced with that are you? Not as far advanced as I would like to be, <laughs> but I expect that it will come out next year. Fantastic. Look, do you enjoy communicating with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I love it because writing is such a solitary profession you don't do it like a musician or an actor or a dancer in front of an audience. And yet the readers are the people you are writing for. So I just love hearing from them and having feedback and I love corresponding with them. You can find me via my webpage, which is terribly simple. It's just alexandrajoel.com, www.alexandrajoel.com or you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Alexandra Joel Author. Fantastic, Alexandra. Thank you so much. We will wind that up, but we've had a marvellous talk. I've learnt lots of new things and I'm just really looking forward to that next book. It sounds wonderful. Thank you, Jenny. It's been a treat. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. 
Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.